Well, you ready to get started today? Let's go. The year was 1980. I was 17 years old and a senior in high school, and my father drove to work with one car and came home with a different car. He had heard that someone was selling this small car, and he knew that I needed a car. So he bought it on the spot. It was a 1972 Opal, four-door. It was white. It ran. <laughs> and it cost $250. But it needed four tires, so the total package was $650. So for $650 that I had to pay my dad, I got my first car. And it wasn't long before I realized that that could be a dangerous thing. My friend, my best friend in high school, Mike Perry, had just recently become converted to Christ, gave his life to Christ, and he was starting to become involved in a church, which happens to be the church that he brought me to, and I met someone there the very first time, beautiful, young, pretty, wonderful, Lisa. So that perked my interest. But uh, I remember one evening I did not uh, go to the church, but my friend Mike was there. But we had already made arrangements because this was our first and last summer. It was our first summer of freedom. We had just graduated from high school, but it was our last summer of freedom. You know what I mean. So we decided to go to a movie. So I picked him up at the church and we we're driving on the way to the movie theater. We're on a two-lane road. It was Beach, uh, North Beach Street. And uh, the river's on one side, and here's the lane houses. And there was a car coming in the other direction and with its brights on. And so I was taught you just kind of flash your bright lights and lets the person know that they have their brights on and they can turn them off. So I did that. It didn't work. So the mistake that I made was to do it again. And evidently, that person doesn't like me because as they're coming in the opposite direction, right before we crossed each other, he decided to come over into my lane. So very quickly, I spun the wheel as fast as I could to the right to go off the road, which somehow, some way, I got off the road and there was not an accident. But the problem was, as I went off the road, I realized I'm headed straight for a tree. I cut the wheel back as fast as I could to the left to get back onto the road, and somehow there was still no accident. I am rattled and shaken, literally shaking, which pretty tough to do at that age in me. I'd already been through a lot of injuries in my life. So it's a little tough to get rattled. I was rattled. But my best friend really made me mad because he had just committed his life to Christ. It was all brand new to him, it was just fresh, and he's just like, praise God, man, that was awesome. Look how God protected us. And I'm like, what are you doing? We almost died. We literally pulled over and we switched places. He drove and I was in the passenger seat. That's how rattled I was. I felt like I was inches away from death. Well, fast forward a short period of time and I was uh, out fishing with a buddy of mine named Mark, I'd parked my car in his driveway. His mother backed out into my car and hit it. Well, that didn't matter really. It was, you know, I wasn't in the car, big deal. Fast forward uh, a little further. 
And I am, uh, Lisa and I are going down to the band shell. If you've ever been to Daytona Beach, you may have been to the band shell. We won't ask what concert you were there for, but you may have been at the band shell. And so they were having a Christian concert down there. And so I'm driving up to a stop sign, parked, to, you know, stopped at the stop sign, but the car behind me didn't stop. And scratched, tried to avoid me, but it scratched the whole side of my car. Another accident. Fast forward a little bit further down the road, a few months down the road, and I'm driving down another road, 45 miles an hour, two-lane road. There's a motorcycle in front of me who's turning right into a place of business. I apply my brakes. I look in my rearview mirror. The truck behind me, carrying 55-gallon barrels of gasoline and diesel, decided he didn't want to stop. But he tried to avoid me by going into the other lane, and so I wanted to compensate for that, so I again tried to cut my wheel to the right to get off the road, but I knew we were gonna have an accident. And he plowed into the back of me, and I don't know how many times my car spun around, but when I stopped, I was, was traveling this way, and when my car stopped spinning, I was facing that way. Just in time to see this construction truck carrying these barrels of gasoline and diesel flip over upside down. I thought the driver is certainly dead. That was all in the first year of my first car. <laughs> but as a result of that, I began to have a thought process. And when I say visions, I'm not saying anything from the Lord. It wasn't just a vision in my mind and literally had dreams at night of dying in a car accident. I can't imagine why, but, you know, just kind of happened. In such a short period of time, there were these accidents. And in a short period of time, I was thinking to myself, that's probably how I'm going to end my life. That somehow, driving down the road, there's going to be an accident, and I'm going to die. And this kept rehearsing over and over in my mind. At this same time, I am not only in love with this young, pretty, sweet Lisa, and now I'm attending church because where she is, I want to be, <laughs> along with the Lord, of course. So I'm, I'm starting to kind of grow in my faith, and I'm starting to learn, and I'm, I'm, I'm falling deeper in love with Christ, and I'm, I'm trying to grow, but I'm still having this, these thought processes and these dreams and this vision of myself dying in this way. And one uh, evening as we were concluding the worship service and we had a time of prayer together, I, it just kind of all hit me. And I was in real distress. And one of the associate pastors came over and he, I guess, saw what was going on in my life and how distressed I was. And he said, Chris, is there anything I can pray with you about? And I told him, I have a vision of me dying in a car accident. And he said, well, that's not from God. And, and we talked for a little while, but then he prayed for me. And can I share with you that in that moment, God released me from that fear. And I never, ever once again had a vision or a thought or anything like that of dying in a car accident. It was instantaneous, a deliverance from that fear. And I've, ne I've never thought about it since. And sometimes when we were younger and first married, Lisa will tell you the way I drove, I had no fear of dying in a car accident. <laughs> she used to call it bumpering. We called it tailgating, but she called it bumpering. I don't, I don't know where that came from. 
If you want to turn, please, in your Bibles to Psalm 91. We're going to read this psalm in its entirety and then, and then really glean some truth from it. Psalm 91 is a, well, the whole book of Psalms is a portion of Scripture that both Jews and Christians have gone to for thousands of years to really find help and comfort, inspiration. We look to the Psalms for comfort and also, of course, for truth. And in Psalm 91 is a very interesting psalm. It is about promises, it is about security, and sometimes, though, there have been those who have had had a, a skewed view of what this psalm is really saying to us. And so we want to first maybe dissect what the psalm is not saying to us so that we can glean what it actually is saying to us. Let's read Psalm 91, and then we'll, we'll keep, our, keep our finger there, and we'll look at a couple of verses in just a few moments. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my strength, or my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra and will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Well, that's a lot to take in, isn't it? There have been those in the Christian faith, and I believe also in the Jewish faith, and I'm saying this as a part of my own life as well, who have used this psalm or thought of this psalm as somewhat of the immunity psalm of the Bible. This is my not only get out of jail, never have to go to jail psalm. Nothing's ever going to happen to me that's bad. Nothing's ever going to happen around me that's bad. It's all going to be smooth sailing, clean, wonderful, awesome, amazing. We read this and we, we begin to say, wow, it, what is that really what the psalm is saying here, what, what is really going on here? Is God telling me that I am just going to be completely, absolutely, 100% secure and nothing bad is ever going to happen? And yet I don't think that's what the psalm is saying. So we need to see what it's not saying and then what it is saying. These promises, some would take them as very specific and very exact and a guarantee to never suffer. And yet we don't find that to be reality. There's some misgiven thoughts and misguided thoughts about this, that God will never allow anything bad to happen to me. But the problem is, is that that becomes a 
difficult situation because we begin to have the thought process as well. If God protects those who trust in him and I am having difficulties in my life, then do I trust God? Or you could say, well, if, if, if God loves me and those he loves, he always protects and never lets anything bad happen, then does God love me? And you see the questions that begin to happen because we're viewing this with a misguided understanding, a misguided even agenda or goal. So why is Psalm 91 not an immunity from all trouble? Well, let's just take a look for, for one thing at the other Psalms. The other Psalms, as well as this one, the other Psalms do not teach anything about you'll never have a difficulty, you'll never have a problem. You can just keep your finger right there where you're at, but just flip to the Psalm before it, Psalm 90, and verse number 10. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Look back at Psalm 89, verses 47 and 48. Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you have created all humanity. We can live and not see death, or who can, who can live and not see death, or who can escape the power of the grave? You'll flip back to the previous Psalm 88. The last verse of Psalm 88, which is like a very, a very gloomy type psalm, says, you have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. So the Psalms do not teach that there's not going to be any problems, not going to be difficulties. You're never going to have any difficulties at all. The Psalms do not teach that. Jesus taught about human suffering and harm. He said, if, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. He's saying, if you follow me, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be difficulty. Yes, there's going to be blessing and there's going to be health and strength and all those things. But there's also going to be trouble and difficulty. And so we have this, this tension that we manage. We have this tension that we live in. And we would all, if we can just be honest and truthful this morning, because we are in church and God is listening. If we would all just be honest, we would love to have the easy road, the easy path. Everything's great and awesome and wonderful. Wow, isn't life wonderful? I don't have to suffer. We'd all want that. Right, right. I answered for you. Because we all want that. And yet, God doesn't promise us that. He says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to encourage you, but there are going to be difficulties and there are going to be troubles. The epistles, the letters in the New Testament warn us about difficulties over and over and over again. He says, there's going to be persecution. There's actually going to be people slip into the church with the intention of causing problems. It's not that you've got to go out and find them. They're going to come find you. That's how, that's how strong the epistles talk to us about suffering and difficulty. Jesus experienced something different than just the wonderful, lovely life. He experienced pain. He experienced suffering. He experienced persecution. And then, of course, in result is he was crucified on a cross. We don't like to hear about suffering. We don't want to think about it, but we actually experience it. When we're young, we do our best to know God's promises and to live in step with his spirit but we must learn through that process of who God is and how he interrelates with me and with us. 
James chapter 1 tells us that we should consider it joyful when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience. And so God allows us to go through difficulties so that we can appreciate the grace that he gives us and the love that he gives us and the comfort that he gives us and the power that he gives us. He allows us to go through those things. And yet as we grow in our faith, we experience new things that we maybe we thought we had already overcome. We, we think I've already been through this and yet God says I've got even more to teach you in that situation. Seven years ago, Lisa and I went out to Montana and we went to Glacier National Park and it was in September and believe it or not, half of the, the, the course, the, the road that goes all the way through Glacier Park is called the Road to the Sun and they had it blocked off because of ice. It was September. And so we went on this road to the sun as far as we could and had to turn around. And we were amazed at the vision. We were just amazed at the mountains and the colors and just the majesty, the, just the grandness of it. It was amazing. And we thought, wow, that's great. Well, this year when we were planning a vacation and a couple of our kids had the, the idea, well, let's, let's have a, a family vacation together. The airfares are, are low right now, and, and we could probably go somewhere and have a great time. And so I wanted to go to Yellowstone because I had already been to Glacier. They wanted to go to Glacier. So guess where we went? Dads never get the, you know, they, we never had the final say. So we went to Glacier. You know, when, when your grown children and their spouses want to go on vacation with you, the place is not important, right? I mean, I'll vacation with them in Auburn, you know? I mean, that's Auburn, Georgia, not Alabama. I mean, there's a limit to my love. I mean, you know. So we go to Glacier, and so we're telling them all about it. You know, oh, the mountains are great and awesome and wonderful. And what Lisa and I did not realize, we didn't even see Glacier because we only got to go about one-fourth of the way through it. We didn't know that. So we, we, we drove to the point that we had had to stop before, and then, of course, we could, were able to keep driving this year, and that's when we were like, oh, wow, we have never been to Glacier before because we were able to see things we couldn't see before. We were able to see the real majesty of it. I, I think that's how God takes it. He says, I'm going to take you as, as this far. Okay, then I'm going to pull back. Okay, the next time I'm going to take you a little further. And that goes both with the grace during suffering, and it also goes with the power of God that he's working in our lives. It also goes with the anointing that God gives us to where he gives us grace every day. His mercies are new every day. And whatever mercy you need, you're going to get that day. But he takes us on this journey and he allows us to suffer to an extent. And he says, I'm testing you. I'm, I'm proving you. I'm showing you my grace. And then as we go through life, we begin to realize that his grace is stronger and stronger and stronger than what we could ever have imagined. Psalm 91 is not the immunity psalm. So where do we find this, the inspiration and the comfort and the truth in Psalm 91? Let's look at a couple of specific verses. Let's see the security that Psalm 91 gives us. First off, we find that the Psalm 91 gives us the promise of rest. It's right there in verse number one. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will have rest in the shadow of the Almighty. 
He gives us a rest that we cannot find anywhere else. We can't find it in the bottle of, a, of an alcohol bottle. We can't find it with pills. We can't find it with a needle shot into our veins. We can't find it with illicit behavior. We can only find it by dwelling in his presence. It is a rest that God gives us. No matter what is happening around us, God gives us rest. The last known words of Buddha were this. Work hard and strive for your own salvation. The last words of Jesus, it is finished. It's done. You don't have to work for your salvation. You don't have to strive and work. And He says, it's done. I paid the price. It's done. And so we, we find rest in our salvation. We find rest in the presence of God. If there was a day, a season where the people of God need to be reminded that we have rest in God, it's today. We are living in such a, a tension, stress. This 2020, how many more days do we have? I'm looking forward to 2021. I think New Year's Eve parties are going to be fantastic this year, right? Yeah, it's, it's a weird year, and we need to embrace that and realize it and recognize it, but in the middle of it, say, but in Christ, I have rest. I have rest. I can't fix the world. I can't fix a virus. I can't fix an election. I can't fix anything except me and Jesus. All right, here we go, God. I'm willing for you to fix me. God, I have rest in you. Can I just speak? Just receive the rest of the Lord today, the rest the rest that God gives us. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be uptight. And we fight that, don't we? Or am I the only one in here? We have to fight for that. We have to, we have to continually tell ourselves, ain't my circus, not my monkeys. <laughs> not my problem. But I'm going to rest in God. The second thing is found there in verse number two, and that's a refuge. God is our refuge. In these times of turmoil, in these times of trying to wonder what's, what's going to happen and what, what is happening and what, what could possibly the future look like, we find refuge in God. All of the attacks, all of the, all of the words against us or against our family or against our people, what, whoever those are, all of those things, he said, I'm giving you refuge. It's, it's like he's saying, crawl into my castle. I've got you. I've got you. And we find refuge in him. That doesn't mean the war stops. It means that we have protection. It doesn't mean that, that bad things aren't going to happen and bad words aren't going to be said. It doesn't mean any of that. It means we have refuge in Christ because we dwell in his presence. The third thing is fearlessness. Verses 5 and 6. What does verse 5 say? You will not fear. Aren't you glad for that? We need to embrace that today. He said, you will not fear, but what are we not to fear? He says, you're not going to fear the terror of night or the air that flies by day. See, a misguided interpretation says there is no terror and there are no arrows. And that's how many have interpreted that. Because I'm a Christian, there is no terror and there are no arrows. That's not what he says. He says, you're not going to fear the terror and the arrows. In other words, you're not going to fear the thing that could do you in, you're not going to fear it. Because why? You have rest in me, and I am your refuge. Can I just speak that today? Let's be fearless. 
by fearing less? I experienced a supernatural deliverance from fear over a specific category in my life. And God does that, and I believe he will do that today in someone's life. We're going to have a time of prayer in a few moments. And I believe that God can deliver someone from fear or anxiety or, or trouble, that, that troubleness that gets down in our spirit, gets in our minds, and I believe God will deliver you today. But even in that process, in order to live a life of fearlessness, let's fear less. It might be that gradual step down. It might be that instantaneous deliverance. Either way, God is good, right? So we live with fearlessness. And the fourth is that of protection. Verses 11 and 14. Verse 11. He will command his angels concerning you and guard you. Now, just stop for just a moment. Think about God guarding you. God. The one who spoke and said, there's the sun. There's the moon. The one who spoke and said, oh, look at all the plants. The one who spoke all the animals. He just speaks. Can he not protect us? I say God is more than enough to protect us. Amen? God is more than enough. He is the protection that we need. Verse 14, because he loves me, says Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. Protection. The fifth is victory. Verse number 13. You will tread on the lion and the cobra and will trample the great lion and the serpent. Now, let me just ask you, there, there's, there's two analogies used to describe Satan in the Bible. What are they? There you go. The lion and the serpent, the serpent and the lion. That's, what, that's an analogy of, of Satan. This roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This roaring lion and a serpent. In the Garden of Eden, that serpent that, that slithers in and tries to, well, doesn't try, he lies. And he's saying, you're going you're gonna to trample, you're, you're going to overcome, you're going you're gonna to tread on that. Why? Because God says, I'm giving you victory. It is not a victory that you, that you have because of who you are. It is a victory you have because of whose you are. And that makes all the difference in the world. The fifth is out of answered prayer, verse number 15. He will call on me and I will answer him. It was in that moment at just uh, 17 years old that I began to realize, you know what, I can call on God and he can answer me and I can have a deliverance right then and right there. Man, that's powerful. He says, I will answer you. He's got to first hear you before he can answer you. And he says, I'm hearing you. You see, this is better than any immunity from difficulty. It's better than any, any, any hedge around you that keeps all the bad stuff away. What's better is that when you pray, God hears you. Whatever's happening around in your family, whatever's happening in your community, whatever's happening in this world, whatever's happening in Washington, D.C., when we pray, God hears us. And when he hears us, we pray according to his word, he answers that prayer. That is the power of intimacy. And that is the promise that he gives us, which I would submit to you is much more valuable than to protect us from all the bad things that happen in this world. To know that no matter what I'm in, no matter what I'm experiencing, God and I have an intimate connection that the world cannot break. The world cannot take away your relationship with God. 
It is impossible for that to happen. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He gives us the answer to prayer. Seven is salvation, verse number 16. It says there's salvation, but salvation from what? Salvation from sin and salvation from separation that guarantees us eternal life. You see, in Psalm 91, we see two different ways of reading this psalm. One of them is that God will deliver you from... But the proper way of reading this psalm is that God delivers from you. See, it's one thing to be in the middle of a fearful situation and not have any fear. It's much different to be in a situation where there really is no reason to fear, but I'm fearful anyway. Which, would, which place would you rather be? Well, I believe that Fear is an inside job, and all of a sudden he says, I'm going to show you I'm so powerful in your life that I will allow you to be in a situation that you have reason to have fear, but you won't have fear because your refuge is me. That is the power. That's how much God trusts you. We talk about trusting God. Can I submit to you today that God trusts you? He says, I will allow you to go into situations because you're going to give me glory and honor there because in the middle of all this fearful stuff going on, you're not going to have any fear and people are going to look at you like you're weird. And then after a while, they're going to go, I think I need some of that weirdness because I'm having ulcers and I'm having to take medicine all day long just to keep my nerves down. And you're not taking any medicine and you're doing great. I need some of your weirdness. It's, his name's Jesus. He's totally weird in this world. This world is one way and he's totally different. That's the definition of weird, right? I know it kind of unnerves you when you say Jesus is weird. In comparison to this world, Jesus is weird. The problem is the world is what's weird. Jesus is what's normal. And so we just say, it's Jesus. He's my refuge. God wants to deliver stuff out of you rather than delivering you out of stuff. He'll do both. Aren't you glad we don't have to choose between the two? Aren't you glad? God does both. You with me? I think I just lost you. Did I just lose you? Half of you, I think I did. Okay? Fear is on the inside. Proverbs tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Proverbs 16, 32 says, it is better that you rule your own spirit than you capture a city. It's better to be of a patient, peaceful mind than to be a great warrior. It's better to rule your own life, to be in control, to allow God to work inside of you rather than being so forceful and mighty that you can take a city. You can overcome a city. He says it's better to, to let God overcome your life than to have the power to overcome a city. Let me, let me just make it real practical here. Let me say something. We can pray, and I think we have been praying, God, take this virus away. I think that's a good prayer. I think we should continue to pray that prayer. God, take this virus away. But let me, let me just say a more important prayer will be to say, God, 
whether this virus leaves or comes or goes or whatever it does, God, I am not going to fear this virus. Lord, I do not know what's going to happen on November 3rd. But whatever happens, I will not fear. Because my refuge is you. You are my refuge. You are my security. You are everything that I need. And I don't have to worry. I don't have to fear. Those are not my monkeys. It's not my circus. I'm not going to mess with it. I'm going to vote. But I'm not going to try and control the world. Lord, you are my refuge, my strength. I find peace in you. If you turn back to the very first verse of Psalm 91, this is where the real key to verse 91 is found. The key is found right there in verse number one. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Not the one who makes an occasional visit, hey God, it's me again. But the one who dwells. The one who lives. The one who stays. See, this is what we call pressing in. The one who presses into the presence of God. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have, how much education you have. It doesn't matter how big your house is, what occupation you have, whether you're unemployed, employed, double employed, overemployed. It doesn't matter. What matters is we're pressing into the presence of God. And it's that one who says, yeah, I'm going to press into God. I'm going to dwell in his presence because I'd rather dwell in his presence in the middle of a war than to be in a time of peace around me, but no, I have no peace in me because I'm not right with God. God would rather take out of you what is interrupting your relationship with him than to take you out of situations that challenge your faith. And so today we're going to have a time of prayer and we're going to take Psalm 91 and say, God, thank you that you can deliver us. Thank you, Lord, that you can keep things away from us. You heal us. A couple of weeks ago, we, we had an entire service dedicated to healing and we prayed for people to be healed and the testimonies have come. Man, I, I think God really spoke to me in that moment and there was a word of knowledge that God gave and he said, somebody said, yeah, that, I think that was really for me. And there were others. I think Sylvia talked to me about a, a, just a miracle in a situation that she was dealing with. So we believe in miracles. We believe God for deliverance. But we also believe that, Lord, no matter what's happening around me, Lord, you are in me, and that trumps everything. That overrides everything. And so today, we got to remind ourselves, God in me is greater than the one that's in the world. God in me is greater than an election. God in me is greater than a virus. God in me is greater than whatever the schools are going to do. God in me is greater than whatever my job, my boss, my company is going to do. God in me overcomes everything. When we press in, we continue on, we seek him then we hear his promises. And when we hear his promises, that's when we experience the rest that God has for us.